0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: We live in a fast-paced, hectic world where it is easy to feel overwhelmed, stressed, and out of control. How do you manage all the competing pressures without losing your sense of yourself? How do you stay focused enough to not only plot a path, but follow it? Welcome to Master Your Life, a show that offers inspiration, insight, and intelligence, as well as success stories for many walks of life that can show you how you can control your own destiny. Our knowledgeable and entertaining hosts and their guests give practical advice that you can use every day in the quest to master your life. Now... Here are your hosts, Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin.
2: Welcome to Master Your Life, the show of insight, inspiration and intelligence where we ask you to consider who is it you are right now and who is it that you would like to most be in your life. I'm host Leah Mattinson and I'm joined today by my amazing co-host, Dr. Howard Rankin. Howard, how are you doing today?
3: I am pretty good. How about you?
2: Oh, I'm just fantastic and I'm, I'm going to be better in just a few minutes because we have such a fantastic guest with us today. I'm really excited. Um, Howard, you know that um, I have a, a- project called Huntington's Life Mastery, and everyone can come and check that out on Facebook. We have a great Facebook page that's up and running. Um, and I've been coaching and doing my work in the areas of um, executive training and athletic coaching for the past 25 years. So in comparison to our guest, I am but a wee baby in the woods. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, without further ado, uh, our guest today is Jimmy Pollard. And, and Jimmy is beloved in the Huntington's community. Um, he started his career 30 years ago uh, doing special education which led him to working uh, with a Huntington's patient in about 1986 and that work has just blossomed over the years and just led to him having a really deep connection with this community and working with people on a day-to-day basis uh, to help them with their struggles uh, through cognitive deficits and declines. Uh, So we're just so thrilled to have Jimmy here with us today. Welcome Jimmy to the show.
4: Well, thanks for having me, thanks for those kind words, and I'm excited to be here.
3: Well, we're really excited about having you on, so perhaps you could um, give our listeners a a sense of your background so that we can, and they can understand how you got to where you are right now. Okay, so
4: picking up on what, as Leah said, um, I began my career as a special education teacher in a school system, and then just through a roll of the dice, I ended up basically doing special ed in a nursing home setting. So it was a nursing home that was designed to take care of people who were atypical nursing home patients back then, the typical being more of a geriatric setting. So the folks that this set out to care with, for all had neurologic problems. It ran the gamut from multiple sclerosis to brain injury, to brain injuries. Um, And the other thing that was atypical about them as nursing home residents was they were relatively young. They were in their 30s or 40s. So we began to do this, and in 1986, as Lee had said, we got a referral on a young woman with Huntington's disease, which I had never heard of. Uh, Her mother, and because we were kind of a typical North American nursing home, not knowing what Huntington's disease was, being really uncertain and hearing really negative stereotypes of nursing home residents who are living with HD, we rejected her for admission. Sure. And sure. her mother called and gently twisted my arm sure. and got me to reconsider. Actually, it was a team, got us to reconsider. Uh, and we ended up admitting her daughter. We didn't know that families touched by Huntington's disease were well-connected through support groups and clinics and the associations, so that once we admitted her, the word kind of made the rounds of families that there was a nursing home willing to care for their folks, where they had previously been having difficulty getting nursing homes to admit people. So it grew rapidly. From We went from admitting the first person, as I said, in 86. About four years later, we had 60 people wow. who were living with Huntington's disease who were nursing home residents with us. And um, uh, so we never set out to have a marketing meeting. That growth of that group was totally organic. Um, We were a specialty program recognized as such. We never set out to do it, and we didn't think we were. Um, So from that kind of just going to meetings and speaking with families and getting to know them, Subsequent to that, I got a call from the founder, one of the founders, uh, Ralph Walker, of the Huntington Society of Canada, who said, we must network you guys with people Mm. around the world. This is 30 years ago. There was not as much going on Uh, in the HD world. uh, So he connected me with uh, people all around the world. Primarily, I might add, for the sake of the show, uh, the Huntington's Association of England and Wales and the Scottish Huntington's Association. So I dare say I probably know as many people, many families touched by HD or connected with them in some way over the years in the UK as I am in uh, North America.
2: Well, that's just what's amazing to me is I'm flipping around through a lot of the story. But the beginning part of this young lady being rejected and 31 years later, flash forward, I think that we're still experiencing um, some of those problems. <laughs> so yeah, we are. You, we yeah, we are. We are. <laughs> we are. Um, and so you've created this little, or or your team has created this gem of a uh, kind of a program or a resource for families. So are you still involved, Jimmy, with that particular um, nursing home or group? Or no? You know, how are I, they doing I, now?
4: I've moved on. Um, I know mm-hmm. they still uh, have a group of people with HD there. From what I understand, they're doing well. Since then, I had moved on to another nursing home. So one was in Lowell, Massachusetts. Then I moved to one in Western Mass, about two hours away. (coughs) Excuse me. That one is doing well, very well, too. And since then, there's been more of a, I shouldn't say a proliferation, but there are more homes in the U.S. that take care of folks with HD and consider themselves. Specialists in care than they were then. There's still the problem persists, as you point out, Leah, that uh, many, many nursing homes and other services in the human service system that should be available to people with, with HD, uh, are there, folks aren't willing to take what they see as risks on people who are atypically young in geriatric settings or yeah. whose challenges are primarily cognitive in settings that are designed to take care of people's physical needs. Uh, and uh, myth and misconception, uh, just like I encountered uh, in 86, when we denied that young woman, uh, that still persists.
3: Yeah, I, I, I'm interested, Jimmy, in what you were actually doing, and I suspect, although the philosophies probably stay the same, it's changed, but, but in 1986 and in the 80s, what were you actually doing um, with these folks,
4: Well, uh, the answer to that really lies in that when I went from the special ed setting to the nursing home setting, and it's important to point out that over time, three or four of my special ed colleagues joined me in the team we had at the nursing home. We as a group brought a different view of what a program was. By that, I mean uh, typically a nursing home program the activities, so uh, with the, with the nursing home comes all of the 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 care routines, taking care of people's physical needs, eating, helping them eat, and shower and bath, yeah. and all the activities of daily living uh, with social work staff and that kind of stuff. We brought to the, to it a special ed teacher and people who were physical physios, physical therapists. Uh, who had worked in a school setting so we viewed uh-huh. it pro- unwittingly that uh-huh. that a program should be a supplemental day that runs pretty much from you know the morning right through the afternoon and there's something always accessible designed to meet people's uh or accommodate people's problems throughout the day um so it was very by nursing home standards it was very intense it was like a supplemental school day for these people during the day. They didn't have to come. Uh, they could leave a session early, but it was always, there's always something there. So it, it, unwittingly, we didn't know that we were basically keeping them <laughs> engaged throughout the day, whereas in a, another setting, uh, without that uh, access to all that relevant fun stuff, um, they'd probably just be bored out of their minds and, Get into trouble, if you will, kind of thing. Right, and
2: bored out of their minds is a very accurate. (laughs) mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Go ahead, Howard.
4: So So, so. so to answer your question, Howard, what we brought to it was that different, and again, unwittingly, that different kind Mm of, well, a program isn't just the clientele we serve. It's things that we do that are actually special, not the clientele.
3: (sighs) Right. So, it was was it sort of physical, social, cognitive, emotional? Was it did it have all of those elements in it? It had.
4: It it was all of the above. Although I would say, and we didn't make an explicit attempt to accommodate any of the emotional kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That would probably be better accommodated in that setting, by the social service staff and who are used to taking addressing those kind of needs. Oz uh, was more on the cognitive end. Uh, with the cognitive and totally integrated into kind of the social mm-hmm. uh, piece, that kind of stuff.
2: And so, what were the the um, like the cognitive deficits primarily that you would have seen in the HD clients at that point? Uh,
4: two or three popped to mind immediately. One is,
2: mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> excuse me, that folks don't like surprises. Yeah. Uh, they they like predictability in their day. They lo- they find comfort in what's coming next. They find power in routine that, that they just know what to do next. Uh, now, when I say routine, like if you Googled the word routine and look, um, if you Googled the, the word routine quotes <clears throat> on Google Images, up would pop all these quotes from, you know, famous writers with a negative... View of the word routine, mm-hmm. meaning there's no interest, nothing changes. Da, da da da. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we want to keep people's lives as interesting and they uh, celebrate their diversity of interests, but do it in a structure that they know pretty much what's coming next. So they know that every day at ten o'clock, this group in their 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 mates are going to be there at the same time, and uh, they don't have to wait until next Thursday for one of these classes or sessions or activities. Um, so one, one thing is building routine. The second thing change we accommodate is that people, <coughs> excuse me, for cognitive, organic brain change reasons, not personality or character, have difficulty waiting so we try to build into the environment, never having to wait, never having to be told, well, I'll get to you as soon as I do X, Y, and Z. Or, uh, gee, I didn't get to, I mean, I know I'm supposed to be helping you with this now, but we're running late today, and I'll get to you in 20 minutes. That people can't wait. It's those filters, those uh, uh, inhibition centers of the brain are effective. So for somebody to wait is extremely difficult. So not keeping people waiting was another one. And the other, the third one that pops to mind is the cognitive challenge, is that people with HD have an increasingly uh, slower uh, ability neural-wise to process what's going on around them in information. HD is not a memory disease, so it's not memory. It just takes a little bit longer and often increasingly longer as people walk their HD roads, just to filter what's going on. So if you say, hey, hey, Howard, what do you want to do this afternoon? You may say, you know, I want to go skiing. But it might take you 15 seconds or 10 seconds to answer that.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: If I say, well, if you want to go skiing, and I wait those 10 seconds, I start wondering what's up with him. Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he doesn't understand what I'm saying. Maybe if I guess what skiing is, da-da-da-da. Right. So to Maybe teach the environment, the weight <laughs> yeah. is difficult. But that was the third one that came to mind.
2: So if you if you were able to you know build in this, I just am imagining you know a, or likening this to young children. Um, that in my head I'm thinking about when my grandson is, you know, doing some of the behaviors he's doing, like having, is is there an age that people can kind of reference in their head that they would go, oh, that's kind of what people are like them when they're, you know, <coughs> two or three years old, that they have these kind of, um, you know, they need the structure and habits or they need the, um, you know, things that are not a surprise um, that it gives well, them comforter.
4: Or- well, uh, I, I, there's two of them. There are two age ranges. Mm-hmm. The first one you already hit on, which is being young, I kind of avoid that because I know that there are kind of uh, unvoiced assumptions or implications when you make a comparison of an adult to a child. Uh-huh. But that said, and, and being sensitive and aware of that, um, yeah, there are, especially in terms of being able to wait for things, that's very childlike. Doing things impulsively, not being able to see the consequences that are about to occur when you do something. Yes, that's very childlike. The other thing is, though, and I say this as a 65-year-old person, a lot of the other references in slowness uh, are are tied to aging, too. A lot of our thought processes slow down, maybe not significantly, but enough to make a difference. Um, So it might take us longer to complete a sentence, or there may be little pauses in the sentence. Um, or we might be more dependent on routine. A lot of uh, older folks are seen by younger folks as intolerant of uh, differences in in the day-to-day thing. I mean, people want their toothbrush in the same place, and they're less tolerant if uh, uh, a 30-year-old or a 3-year-old squeezes the toothpaste tube in the middle, that kind of stuff. So there is. So there is. There is. There is many uh, reference as in the more advanced years, just like there are many reference in the early years of kids. I don't know if that answers your question.
3: No, it's fascinating, and, and what I'd like to focus on uh, immediately after we come back from from the break is so how has what you were doing thirty years ago how has that evolved, and what are the things you have added to that program, and we'll address those with our guest Jimmy Pollard on the other side of Master Your Life. Mm-hmm.
6: If you've been searching for fat loss and mental clarity in one place, think ketosis. Maybe you've heard about a ketogenic diet but have been totally turned off by the painstaking effort to do it. Well, agonize no longer because there is a solution. What could be just as simple and easy as taking your daily vitamins? Visit reallifetraining.expert to find out. Raise your hand and get in on the front end of the total wellness revolution. Get well. Manage your mood. Clear your mind. Visit reallifetraining.expert now. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment.
1: You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson, Dr. Howard Rankin, or their guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah, that's L-E-A-H-A, at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your
3: Life. Welcome back to Master Your Life. I'm co-host Dr. Howard Rankin along with my wonderful host, uh, Leah Mattinson. Today we're talking with Jimmy Pollard, a man who spent a large part of his career helping people with Huntington's disease uh, and starting out in an incredibly, uh, fortuitous isn't the right right word, but started out almost serendipitously being a Um, special education teacher and starting applying that in the 1980s to helping people with with cognitive deficits and in the first half of the show Jimmy was telling us about how he started out doing that and what they were doing and and, and Jimmy I'd like to to have you tell us about how that has evolved over time Uh, well
4: um, not unlike a lot of uh, uh, families and uh, professionals over time um, we quickly learned that uh, the cognitive changes and the challenges they bring are the primary thing of living with HD as you walk your HD road. So, doctor, phys- the medical world conceives of Huntington's disease as a triad—a triad of of clinical symptoms: movement, mood, and cognitive. Historically, uh, HD is seen as, and it's still, if you go into a major teaching hospital, it be in the movement
3: mm-hmm. disorder
4: world. It was previously known as Huntington's chorea, meaning the movement, chorea mm-hmm. being the involuntary movements. So people think of it as a movement disease. Over time, you realize that no, and this is a fact, by the way. Almost no person living with any disease who has Korea complains to their doctor about their movement disorder. <laughs> Typically, <laughs> the caregivers do. Mm-hmm. But so, what we learned, as many other people do, is that the mo- the movement stuff, the motor stuff, is nowhere near as important as accommodating the cognitive problems, the changes in thinking, because the. Movement never got anybody in trouble with relationships. Nobody. Movement never got anybody in trouble in their jobs. Movement never got anybody uh, presented problems to nursing homes. Changes in thinking are what hurt why people lose jobs, why they get in difficulty with their relationships, and why they carry that bad reputation in health care. Uh, Related to nursing home admissions, as we said, so one was uh, to realize that that to realize that that the changes in thinking are the most difficult things that people are living with, and are the most difficult things for us as carers to accommodate. Now, I that that one minute of me explaining that probably, probably took me five years to figure out. Okay, mm. because mm. the world is pushing you towards this movement disease disease da da da. So. Once we started to do the cognitive stuff, we began to try to address in it, uh, how we do things as simple as ask questions. So instead of saying, you know, what do you want to do today, which is an open-ended essay question to a resident in the home, we would be more of a multiple choice question because it's easy for them to recognize an answer. So we might say, what do you want to do today? Uh, go skiing, go shopping, hang around the house hang around the nursing home, whatever. Uh-huh. To get 120 staff members in a nursing home to be aware of that concept and actually then to implement it and then supervise that they actually do it, that's no small task. So a lot of the morphing were ways to get people to do those fundamentally simple things. Because as an irony, we're we're simply asking people, a, a profoundly simple thing, wait longer in an environment where they're all working, doing eight or nine things at the same time, the workers, and our culture, everybody is chronically multitasking. So to get them to do it, that's the that's the, the big part of the journey is how, how to manage that. Yeah, and I love
2: that you that more, you use the term chronically multitasking because sometimes it's not the people with the HD that actually have the bigger problem.
4: <laughs> well, like,
2: yeah, we're all we're all trying to learn how to communicate.
4: You <laughs> you get me in trouble, man, on that one. Because a lot of the and 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 I, I could speak as a uh, a professional. Yes, in the early years, most of the behaviors that problem or the misbehaviors that got me in trouble with Mm -hmm. the residents were of my own doing, like doing things myself impulsively. Hey, let's do this today. And they thought we were going to do something else. So I, I, I didn't get that for so long. And I use that as an example of what you're hinting at, Leah, which is a lot of the problems, a lot of the crazy scenarios are not of the making. Of oh, the person with Huntington's disease, it's the people around them, whether it's us professionals or their families. Some families don't have as much difficulty as others, and there's probably something to be learned in there, too, by the way.
3: I mean, I think you, your story is uh, just another great, great example of the enormous value of trying to understand the patient where are they and what is subjectively important to them? Because, you know, I think that's, that is so poignant that you say that the medical profession says it's a movement disorder but that's not how most people experience it primarily and I totally understand that and I think that's huge I think that's huge from uh, a treatment perspective a management perspective and, and a humanistic perspective of trying to understand where the patient is not from some preconceived notion you got out of a textbook but from listening to them and trying to find now, what is critical to them.
4: You're here, right. And as, so my, in psychology, my, my background and training is in applied behavior analysis. Right. And uh, the premise of uh, the founder, uh, B.F. Skinner, was, quote, the organism is always right, that <laughs> What needs to be changed is the environment around the person. So that's a little radical for too many, for a lot of people, because they, they immediately get defensive and say, "You mean I'm creating all this?"
5: Uh-huh.
4: Well, yes, is the bad news, uh-huh. but no is the good news in that you're not the only variable, if you will, in this person's world. There's right. all kinds of things we can start changing, and you don't have to change radically overnight. You just chip away. You do what you can do, do. You do your best until you can do more, you know. Uh, but, yes, so this notion that we just stumbled across, yeah, a lot of the challenges or a lot of the reasons why folks with HC have a negative thing in the uh, view in the nursing home world is not because of them. It's because of uh-huh. the culture that comes with nursing homes.
2: Oh, and w- go into that a little bit deeper, Jimmy. The culture that is in the nursing home.
4: Um, okay, I I've I always risk alienating many people by talking oh. about, but but you're looking oh. at it at, uh, at, at, at a at a institution, not meant in a negative way, but or an agency, or that's designed essentially still around geriatric residents. and whose primary problems are physical or medical. Uh, Now, yes, I understand, I would say to my colleagues, that nursing homes are changing. So if I break a hip or a leg at my 65-year mark here, I'm going to be in a nursing home for a short time for rehab. And Mm -hmm. I also know that the industry has accommodated the large increasing number of folks with, Alzheimer's disease. So, yes, there are memory programs, but other than those accommodations, the fact remains that it is oriented to physical care and um, everybody being able to be uh, quiet and relatively docile as the institution moves through its day. You introduce people that have difficulty waiting probably are impulsive and are atypically young mm-hmm. and good things uh-huh. not necessarily are going to reliably happen all the time. Quick example. One of my first, this is the, the days of late eighties when nursing home staff on 11 to seven shift in the middle of the night, would smoke cigarettes uh-huh. and uh, no, no typical little old lady, uh geriatric uh-huh. resident would get up and say, Hey, I smoke. could I have one with you? But if you're 35 years old and have Huntington's disease Mm
5: -hmm.
4: and you smell the staff smoking in the room at night and you're awake, you will uh, amble on down there and say, hey, uh, can I have one? And those kind of things are what create problems.
2: Is that because people don't want to share their cigarettes?
4: (laughs) No, it's because, no, no, I would, I would, I would encourage them to share their cigarettes back yes. then, <laughs> but no, because they will say, no, you're supposed to go back to bed mm-hmm. or we're not right. supposed to do this with you or blah, 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 whatever. Right. The, the reasons to say no may not be rational. They just may be the first thing that comes to a person's mind.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Right. So, I don't know but if that's hope. a good example. If I'm, Am I being clear oh. on what I mean on this?
3: Well, I think what you're saying is, you know, organizations and nursing homes exist to the most efficient management of their patients. And to do that, you really have to kind of clump everyone together and and label them and put them in broad categories. But the fact is each person is an individual. And so you lose some of that, or you can lose some of that. And you've got to be sensitive as an organization to those individual differences, even if they make life a little more difficult for you. And so what I'm hearing you say, understandably, is that's where, and you're not the first person to say it on our show, Mm -hmm. talking about these sorts of issues, that the organization has a perspective that, um, by definition, is going to misunderstand, perhaps not fully appreciate individuals' needs. Isn't that a fair comment?
4: That's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you for doing it so succinctly (laughs) and uh, spot on.
3: And so that's why I think it is important to have advocacy and programs that recognize those individual differences and, and cater to people's individual needs because, you know, one person might need, you know, a lot of work in one area. Some person with the same diagnosis might need something quite different.
4: Right. And some accommodations like that are easier than others. For example, it's easier to accommodate somebody's unique dietary needs. Than it is in a lot of yeah. cases to accommodate their unique cognitive needs.
3: For sure.
2: Yeah. Yes. And I think the um, the other thing is not just do nursing home staff need to learn this stuff, but also um, you know when we're advocating for ourselves and our relationships at home before we get into care, learning some of these you know skills and tips and tricks to help manage. Um, the the cognitive changes and declines and deficits so that you can stay home longer. So your relationships are, you know, in good repair for as long as they possibly can be. Uh, so has some of this education trickled out of the institutional kind of um, realm and and is it trickling into the more general population of people with Huntington's, Jimmy?
4: Yes, and to a much greater degree. Um I was in Washington, D.C. this weekend, and yet another person. This is one of the most poignant moments that I get in, in what I do. Um, so I finished doing my talk about what it's like to live with the uh, cognitive challenges, and I do it by doing a comp- some role-playing you know, games and stuff. But it's not a typical. but this guy comes up to me, and he's holding quietly. He waits in line to talk to the speaker kind of thing. And then he gets me alone and says, with filling up the cry, "I wish I knew this for my wife,
5: mm-hmm.
4: uh, who had passed 20 years earlier, mm-hmm. but at least I know yep. it for my daughter." Yeah. So I figure then that he got it, you know, mm-hmm. it only took an hour, but he got a lot of stuff that's immediately applicable applicable that he now has figured out. Uh, families know this intuitively. Uh, the fact that it crosses generations and a lot of families that have multiple members, they see it, they know what it is. Some of them just get it and and figure it out. Others need a little guidance. Others are so uh, challenged they have difficulty. But but overall, most people do figure it out. It might take longer some than others, but they do. And 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 I think that we can expedite that for people and that like that guy. And that happens to me often. It's very moving. Um, but you know that uh, he's now going to pass on all of these kinds of things to grandchildren and mm-hmm. maybe an in-law or in, and that kind of stuff. So that's been going on now for a long time. And if you multiply that across mm-hmm. generations within a family or continents within Associations. Yes, the word I
3: believe is getting out. Yeah, and that's, you know, that is, you know, an essential part of of what you do because you're not just informing a few people here and there. You are really. allowing them to pass that on and, and pass it on and pass it on to the point where it, you know, its influence is is magnified and, and I think it's really important in, in terms of you know, as we were talking about really trying to understand what the person with Huntington's needs, you know, we live in a society where, you know, let's face it, we're not terribly good about putting ourselves in the other person's shoes uh, Typically we, we aren't trained to do that and uh, I am sure that A lot of what you do helps people understand that more and facilitates that. And when we come back on the other side, I really would like to get you to address those practical issues, those things that family members and caregivers, even people in nursing homes, can do to really understand the patient and accommodate their behavior. Accordingly. So we'll address that when we get back on the other side of Master Your Life.
6: It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. If you've been searching for fat loss and mental clarity in one place, think ketosis. Maybe you've heard about a ketogenic diet but have been totally turned off by the painstaking effort to do it. Well, agonize no longer because there is a solution. What could be just as simple and easy as taking your daily vitamins? Visit reallifetraining.expert to find out. Raise your hand and get in on the front end of the total wellness revolution. Get well. Manage your mood. Clear your mind. Visit reallifetraining.expert now. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are
1: tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson, Dr. Howard Rankin or their guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah, that's L-E-A-H-A, at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life.
2: Welcome back to Master Your Life. I'm host, Leah Mattinson, joined by my co-host, Dr. Howard Rangan, and our wise guest, Jimmy Pollard. And today we're just talking about uh, cognitive de- deficits and recognizing those things and making it easier for people who have cognitive challenges to have uh, good relationships and master their uh, life and relationships moment by moment in how, in how they walk through the world and in how people um, uh, understand and interact with them. So, Jimmy, before the break, we were just um, you know, kind of talking about some stories about how when people have this information that you share with them, how it actually affects their families. And, and so from a, just that perspective of being a family member, I know one of the things is when people get this stuff, That the love returns, Uh, you know, like people love each other, but active love returns when wounds are healed and resentments drop because often people are confused about, like, how do I treat this person and how do I interact with them? And they seem to not want to do anything anymore. And sometimes it's just because we've just given them way too much to do. Uh, So, this segment just like to pick up on that and talk about what are these, you know, day to day things that we could just do a little bit differently with people with HD or with other cognitive declines that can help to uh, shape and heal the relationships that may have had some uh, damage in the past.
4: Well, I I like to say that there's a lot of uh, horrible things about Huntington's disease and a lot of other diseases, <laughs> all of them. Yes. Uh, but but one that I think should be added to people's list of, of the horrible things about Huntington's disease is that some of the only things that we can do as carers or mm-hmm. people who love people with any disease are so simple in nature or so, so simple in their very nature but ironically are so impo- nearly impossible to do in the world and cultures we live in. Like if because people think slower Because of the organic changes in their neurons, we Mm -hmm. need to wait, which pretty much means in general, you need to slow down in your life. Mm
5: -hmm. So no matter
4: what country you're on in right now, if anybody tells you, gee, you you should slow down, man, you're going to (laughs) look at them and say, what? Slow down? You know, I'm spinning eight plates here on poles simultaneously. I got to pick the kids up. I got (laughs) to roast in the oven. You know, and I got to get to work. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, the only thing we can do for slower thinking is to slow down for the people to express themselves. Uh, it's so damn difficult. Mm-hmm. So, one big practical thing is just in general, you got to wait longer. When I tell people to wait, it's almost insulting. It's so simple, but it's—I don't intend to be insulting. I intend to uh help you recognize that it's just not you it's it's the world you're living in it's the culture we're living in that demands so much of everybody every moment so that living in the moment is a thing right We, we have to talk about it and it's the same kind of thing now so slow down can't say it enough wait for people to respond the other thing, another practical thing is, although that's kind of nebulous, but it's applicable in every, everything, P- in conversations, in helping people get dressed, in helping people get out to the car to go somewhere. You're looking at your watch saying, when the heck are we going to get out of here? Mm-hmm. you got to accommodate that slowness. <clears throat> um, but there are other things to do in terms of routine. And you, people... There was once a guy, a famous psychologist, if I forget his name, who said in describing a disease that people have a compulsion for sameness,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and he was talking about autism. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing for honey disease and some yeah. neurologic things, where people need, as I said earlier, predictability in their environment. So even in this crazy world where we don't know where we're going to eat any one of our meals for the next seven days, some of us do, but most of us don't, or Mm -hmm. precisely what time, people who need predictability, we have to work towards that. That's not easy, you know?
2: Um, Right, and especially when regularly people say, We've got to have fun. Oh, this has to be fun. And everything has to be fun, which implies that right. it needs to be, yeah, impulsive and and unplanned in order for it to be a good time. Right. And, and so, yeah, what you're saying completely makes sense. My mom uh, and dad still live at, at home. Um, so my right. dad's 78. He has Huntington's. He has, you know, a bit of Korea. His, his cognitive function is fairly good. And he's one of the very few people um, who the neuropsychiatrist says uh, has insight still. And so uh, because that goes in this disease uh, at some point along the way often and but he he can like check himself um, if somebody is entering uh, like a hot topic or something that's a hot button, uh, he's able to recognize that that's going to push something for, for him and not respond. Um, but that's rare. And I think it's because he still has the emotional mastery at the end of the day because my they have good habits and good routines and lots of predictability about what they do and who they interact with. Um, so mm-hmm. that keeps yeah. that all in place. Yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And, uh, and I guess that's what I was trying to say way earlier. Yeah, when people mm-hmm. hear the word routine, it's almost like mm-hmm. the, the antithesis of having fun. Mm-hmm. All I'm suggesting is you can... Having fun and doing things, different things, can be equally routine, uh, mm-hmm. as long as you know what's coming. But the first couple of examples, when you asked me for practical examples, I gave you. Two, I think they were too conceptual. Let me give you two quickies that are more practical. Uh, the first one is: let's say you're at home and you're having a kitchen table discussion with somebody who has HD and is well into their challenging thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to talk about the kids or the grandkids or what you did during the day. All I'm saying is uh, tend to come up with a, 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 a more of a plan, I guess, of how you're going to do it. So <clears throat> whenever you end up at the table and you're chatting, go through your kids in order. You know, this, like my four kids <clears throat> in birth order. How's Jimmy doing? How's Patrick doing? Have you heard from Brendan? Where's Marianne going tonight? But just in that same order. Or how was work today? And then talk about work. How was your work? How was my work? <clears throat> so that there's that order. You don't have to explicitly state, okay, now we're going to do it in this order. But if you're the one, you're the partner without HD, you can subtly teach yourself to do it in the same order the person with HD just picks up on that. They know what's coming next, done day after day after day. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when if you're helping somebody give a shower, give somebody a shower, if you're more advanced and depend on family or nursing home caregivers, to help you bathe. <coughs> make sure, I mean, people bathe other people in different ways.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: But I'm saying if you do you know, we'll do from your we'll do your face and hair first, and then your shoulders and your legs. Maybe somebody else does it in a different way, but it should be the same way, the same thing. It's like okay, uh, 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 use the same thing, uh, use the same instructions. Okay, Charlie, uh, let's take a bath here. Let me do your we'll do your hair, shampoo it up, uh, wash your face. Then I'll do your arms, your armpits, your legs, your crotch, whatever. Tell them it's coming. And then as you do each one, you say, okay, now, like play-by-play. It's like a Mm -hmm. sports play-by-play of taking a shower. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? And then you get halfway through it. You say, okay, we got your, we're shampooed. We're all, got your arms, we're about halfway through here, man. Now we're going to do this, that kind of stuff. You the typical person who's helping a loved one take a shower is probably talking to them about something. (laughs) All the routine thing is saying, you're not changing that. You're just being aware of using the same conversation at the same, in the same order every day. So that's what I'm saying of build routine. Uh, it could be drilled down to that easy, easy, Mm -hmm. uh, not easy, easy, that fundamental thing of bathing. Um, These things make a huge, done over time, these things make a huge difference in how people experience Huntington's disease. If there's predictability in their environment, it does make an impact. No one event that you do can be traced to like an aha moment of now it's all going to be easier. It'll never be explicitly seen as like, oh, that was it. Now it's going to be easy. But if you chip away at it over time, you build that predictability And that comfort comes unconsciously.
2: And does the comfort come for the caregiver too, Jimmy, in that routine? Do do people express that they feel like better because they've been able to successfully kind of, yeah, work with Uh, somebody else?
4: To quote a woman, a mom named Barbara who took care of her daughter, Mm -hmm. she said uh, one day, thank God that what works best for her works best for me. (laughs) You know? So what do
3: you do? That's right. Yeah Jimmy I have an autistic son so I know exactly right. what you're talking about uh, and you learn very quickly that predictability and routine is this is what we're going to do this is what we're going to do next and you can and and in answer to Leah's question the reward for the caregiver is we're actually successfully and peacefully doing this without you know in this case my son yeah. getting agitated or upset yeah. um, because yeah. the brain is in such a state that it's really critical to know because it can go off in a gazillion different directions which can be very anxiety producing so that predictability which for us may be why do we need to say exactly what we're going to be doing you do because again that is about putting yourself in the other person's position right and and figuring that out mutually is
4: the word I like to use is that is a uh, that is a form of intimacy.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah, just as you were talking about the um, the routines, I know that in our uh, relationship that Dwayne and I, it's like we make sure that our routines are fun. Like right now, I'm not symptomatic. Well, maybe after this interview, you'll tell me differently, but <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no. whoa. No, no. <laughs> However, <laughs> in the la-la land of thinking that I'm completely great, uh, we've established routines that are enjoyable routines around um like morning rituals and things like that. So what I encourage people to think about is like, have a playful uh, intimate life and have that as a routine part of your life so that, it, that, that that you're filled up in other ways rather than, you know, just the showering and just the, you know, caregiving, but that if you start early on in your marriage uh, or your relationship with your loved one, wh- whoever it is that has the, whatever the deficit is going to be, um, and that if part of your routine as a couple is uh, intimacy, then this um, really deep care and concern for one another um, throughout a span of time Uh, is much easier to continue on as people age, whether they have HD or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or they break their leg or or the million things that happen in families. So think about like this routine thing as it could actually be a a really good uh, nurturing, nourishing part of your life, I guess. Precisely. Mm -hmm.
3: My silence is
4: my consent. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jimmy, we got a couple minutes, and, and one of the things that I certainly would want to have us talk about before we get off the air is where can people find out more about you and what you do?
4: Um, well, so all this stuff, I self-published this book uh, uh-huh. called Hurry Up and Wait, which refers to what I just said. It, uh-huh. Wait, is evident now after nope. all I've been going on about and hurry up is if people have the deficit of, they can't wait for anything. You've got to hurry up. So it's kind of the absurdity of they have slower processing. So you need to wait. They they can't wait for brain reasons. So you have to hurry up. So you, yes, you have to hurry up and wait at the same time. And you know that the phrase hurry up and wait represents all absurdity of all kinds. Uh, so that's what it's called. <laughs> And most of everything I talk about is in that book, self-published book, and that's available on an online publisher called uh, lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. And if you just search, hurry up and wait, Pollard, it'll pop up. Other than that, I'm a Facebook guy and uh, uh, just under Jimmy Pollard, And but I don't have a central website. I work... For the CHDI Foundation, I take all invitations in the U.S. to go and speak to support groups, conferences, any HD-related function. And they could just call me or email me at jjpollard uh, at comcast.com, and I would like all those invitations. Uh, We go to all of them. I'm fully paid and funded. There's no cost by the CHDI Foundation. And if it's in the U.K., uh, the HDA of U.K., uh, England and Wales... Has me over pretty every couple of years. We do a series of talks, and if anybody needs to get a hold of me, they can call Kath Stanley or Bill Crowder at the HDA. And I actually know most of the regional care advisors, and I go to Scotland pretty not not regularly, but often enough. And most of the Scottish regional advisors could connect you with me too. And, and we'll sure City to get. Canada.
2: Yeah, Howard's and we'll be sure to be. get all of your social media um, posted on um, on social on the social media and the e card yeah. for for the show. Yeah. So, just this has been an absolute delight, Jimmy. You you just have so much knowledge. We sure hope you join us again, uh, Howard. Do you have any again? closing words?
3: <laughs> no, I just want to thank you so much for all that you do. I mean, you've mm-hmm. you've I am sure touched. Thousands, if not you know, hundreds of thousands, of people, and this is is so critical. It's so critical in diseases the like Huntington's, we've been talking about, where people can feel lost in a system where their experience of it is can be minimized. You know what you're doing is incredibly valuable. So you know, God bless you, and thank you for what you're doing. And
4: thanks for the opportunity. Back at you, and you're you're. Uh example of autism is is right on when it comes to predictability
3: yeah uh, thank you yeah you're very 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 welcome
2: okay well until next time uh join us again for some insight intelligence and inspiration on master your life
1: thank you for being a part of our show today Master Your Life with Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin can be heard every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go enjoy your successful life.